And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the days of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the old earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered, and said, to, and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are besides the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole, world, of the whole, of the whole earth. I read recently in an article that the church in the West is in crisis. We don't live in a postmodern world anymore, but we live in a post-Christian era. We're not talking anymore about the debate between truth and opinions or the debate between facts and feelings. These are things of the past. We are now living at a time where the subjective secular self is de deconstructing and redefining reality itself. We're not talking anymore about the idea that Christianity or religion should be relegated to the personal and private sphere of life, um, but we are now living at a time where Christian values and ethics are perceived as harmful and dangerous, and we're speaking about faith, your faith, can sometimes be construed as hate speech. So if we thought that Christian ministry was hard before, where and how are we going to find the resources we need to continue to engage with the gospel in a world that is so hostile to Christianity? Where is the church going to find strength to persevere? Who is the church going to turn to for help? Where is the church going to find the resilience, the spiritual courage and conviction and strength and spiritual maturity to engage 
faithfully and uncompromisingly with a world that is aggressively secular and hostile towards Christianity. Think about the pastor serving for 20 years in a congregation of 30 people where their two only elders are now in their early 80s. The minister preaches 90 times a year at the morning and evening services, two different sermons. He feels emotionally drained, spiritually dry, but he doesn't want his congregation to be discouraged and so he doesn't talk about it. Where will this minister find strength and spiritual renewal in order to keep going in ministry. I have a ministry colleague and friend who has been ministering in a small congregation for close to eight years now. He has conducted more funerals in his ministry than baptisms. And now the finances of the church are starting to dwindle. Where is he going to find renewed zeal and strength and a renewed passion for the gospel to persevere when it appears that all of his labors and efforts have not produced much for the gospel. Or we, or we can think about it on a personal level. Maybe there is a particular sin that has caused us much grief and discouragement in our life as a Christian. And we have struggled with this sin for a long time. Maybe we are starting to feel discouraged and defeated by what we are going through. So where are we to go to find encouragement? Where are we to go to find strength? Where are we to go to find hope and joy when things around us seem unsolvable and hard and difficult? Well, Zechariah chapter 4, in Zechariah chapter 4, God tells his people, and especially Zerubbabel, where to find encouragement in times when things around us seem to be going nowhere. In times when we face great challenges, and in times when we are discouraged. So I have uh, three points for us to look at this morning, uh, tonight. The first one, the Lord has provided for his people an ever-flowing source of help. Verses 1 to 6, the Lord has provided for his people an ever-flowing source of help. In 586 BC, something unimaginable and unthinkable happened. Jerusalem fell at the hands of the Babylonians. I try to imagine for a minute the impact that this would have had on the people living there at the time. The city was captured. The temple of God was destroyed. Many people died. And the survivors were taken into captivity to Babylon. The remnant was left behind, faced with all kinds of trouble, and lived in shame. But in his faithfulness to his promises, God, who is rich in mercy brought his people back into the land of Judah. But when they came back some 70 years later, what they found was a city in ruins. The walls, the temple, and the city had to be rebuilt. And things started reasonably well. Things started reasonably well. In the book of Nehemiah, we read that though there have been some difficulties, after 52 days, reasonably short amount of time, the wall of the city was rebuilt and the work was done. But it was a very different story when it came to rebuilding the temple. 17 years have gone by since they arrived. And all they were able to rebuild was the altar and the foundation of the temple. 
Everything else was still undone. Those who returned from the exile faced all sorts of challenges. They faced a lack of food and resources. They faced opposition from their neighbors who didn't want them to succeed. And with time, the people started to become discouraged. And the idea of rebuilding the temple and finishing the temple seemed like an impossible task to complete. So in Zechariah chapter 4, to encourage his people, to spur them on in the face of what appeared to be an insurmountable task, God sent to the prophet Zechariah and to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, a vision and a word and a message to tell Zerubbabel that the temple will, will be completed. But look at verse 6. I hope you got your Bibles open with you there and look at verse 6. But it would not be, it will not be by might, nor by power, but the work will be completed by the Spirit of God. This is what the vision of verses 2 to 4 is all about. God, through His Spirit, was going to provide an endless source of power and resourcefulness that would, in time, flatten all the challenges that they were facing. And the temple would finally be completed. There are five elements to the vision. The first one is mentioned in verse 2. Zechariah sees a lampstand, all of gold. He sees a golden lampstand. And I'd like to thank Rowena to, because she's included a photo. It should be there. Yes, it is. A photo of a golden lampstand on the PowerPoint tonight. This is what Zechariah would have seen. And let us remember, it's nighttime. And Zechariah sees a vision of a golden lampstand shining bright, shining bright in the darkness. And if you remember when God gave to Moses instructions about the building of the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle where God will dwell with his people, God said to Moses, make a lampstand of pure gold and place it in the tabernacle. Again later in 1 Kings chapter 7, when King Solomon began building the temple, where the glory of God will come to dwell with his people, Solomon made ten golden lampstands and he put them in the temple. So we can say with some confidence that this vision is pointing in some way back to the temple and to God's presence with his people. But that is not all that Zechariah sees. He also sees a ball. So there's the lampstand, but he sees a ball on top of the lampstand. And the ball is collecting oil coming from two olive trees, one on the right side and the other on the left. And so when we put the picture together, we have oil coming down from two olive trees, feeding into a ball and then feeding into seven lamps with seven wicks on top of the lampstand. So what Zechariah sees is an amazing and stunning and awe-inspiring vision of a golden lampstand shining bright with 49 little wicks, little lips. It's a vision that points back to the temple. It's a vision that points to God's presence with his people. He is their light. It's a vision that reminds us that the people of Israel were called by God to be a light to the nations. So it's a composite picture. We can read about God's people being a light to the nation in Isaiah chapter 42. And the significance of the vision is given to us in verse 6. The temple will be rebuilt. 
God's spirit represented by the vision of the oil will accomplish it. Haggai, uh, a prophet ministering during the time of Zechariah says this. So in Haggai chapter 2, Haggai the prophet says this. Who is left among you who saw this house, that is the temple, the old temple, in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. Work, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. My spirit remains in your midst. The vision then is to encourage them, encourage them to rebuild the temple. Their resources were limited. Their strength was limited. They were discouraged. Their morale was low. Their enemies were giving them a hard time. Seventeen years have gone by and the work had stalled. But God's Spirit was with them. The Spirit of God was going to provide for all their needs. So what we find in this passage is this contrast between their limitations and God's resourcefulness and limitless power of the Spirit of God working through His people to enable them to complete the work of the temple. Now there are multiple applications uh, from this section of our passage, but the one that I would like to draw your attention to is this one. When the people of God were discouraged, the Lord gave to them a vision. He gave to them a promise about what God was going to do for them. Now God for a moment, for, an, for a moment, the time of a vision, a night vision, God peels, as it were, the veil between heaven and earth to reveal to his people his purposes for them. For a moment, what God does is reveals to them what he knows he will be doing for them. There are a number of times in the Bible when God does this. The, circ the circumstances of God's people seem desperate. And from an earthly perspective, it seems like all is lost. And then God, by his power, peels the veil, removes the veil between heaven and earth, and reveals to his people what, that he is in control, that he is with them, and that he has good purposes for them, and that he will defend them and take care of them. So let me give you an example. This example is from 2 Kings chapter 6. And in this story, there's uh, Elisha and his servant. And there's the king of Syria and his army. And they surround Elisha and his servant. In the passage, the servant of Elisha, the prophet, is scared. There's Elisha, there's his servant. And then there's the king of a whole nation, the king of Syria. They've surrounded them. And for quite some time now, the king of Syria has been trying to get to Elisha. Finally, the opportunity comes. So the servant is scared, and he starts to believe that they are trapped, and that there is nothing they can do. But then Elisha prays, and Elisha says to God, to show to his servant what God sees. Elisha says to God, could you please, Lord, show to my servant what you see from the perspective of heaven. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the servant, and when God opened his eye, he saw horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. For a moment, the veil between heaven and earth was drawn back, and Elisha's servant realized that God was with them, defending them, that he was in charge. 
For a moment, Elisha's servant saw how powerful and resourceful and incomparable God's power was. We find a similar thing happening in the book of Revelation, and our pastor, uh, Gerald, has been preaching through the book of Revelation for us. Domitian, the, Ro the Roman Empire, is on the throne, and he demands to be worshipped. The emperor of one of the greatest empires in the world of the time demands to be worshipped. But the people of God refuse. They refuse to call him Lord. Their only Lord and Savior is Jesus. And therefore, the people in the first century come in direct confrontation with the Roman regime. Believers are being persecuted, and some have lost their lives. And in the midst of the sufferings of his people, what does God do? He gives to John visions, gives to him pictures of heaven. God peels the veil between heaven and earth and gives to his church a vision of the church viewed from heaven. And what does John see? He sees the church triumphant, glorious. He sees believers dressed in white. They have been made perfect in Christ. He sees Jesus, not the baby meek and mild in the manger. He sees the glorious Savior, inexpressible in, in wonder and glory. And the vision that John sees in the book of Revelation are designed to be a source of encouragement to God's people. And here in Zechariah, a similar thing is happening. The people of God have returned from exile. Things are difficult. The task of rebuilding the temple seems humanely unachievable, impossible. But God gives to them a vision and a message to tell them that nothing, nothing is impossible for him. He peels the veil. He will accomplish the work by his spirit. And so it is for us. There will be time in our lives, times in our ministries, times in our churches when we feel discouraged and flat. And we might feel defeated. In those moments, we need to remember God's promises to us. We need to remember that we have been given access to the ever-flowing power of the Spirit of God at work within us. In the midst of our continuing battle against sin, we need to remember that we have the limitless power of the Holy Spirit to help us. We are no more slaves to sin. We have the power of the Spirit of God working within us, transforming us each day, each day, into the likeness of Jesus. When we find ourselves wondering about the future of the church, and we look around us and we see laws are being put in place to persecute the church, to um, oppose the church. In those times, in the midst of a hostile society, we need to look behind the veil and remember that in the gospel, the victory is not future. The victory has been won already. God's people will be vindicated. Christ will build his church and all the forces of evil and darkness will not prevail against her. Our greatest enemy has been defeated. Satan is a defeated foe. He cannot accuse us anymore. Sin and death has no power over us. In the gospel, we are more than conquerors. Nothing can ever separate us from God. Our citizenship is in heaven. We have the deposit of the Holy Spirit in us. 
And when the Christian life and Christian ministry gets tough and difficult and challenging, we need to remember that Jesus has promised to be with his church always. So this is our first point this morning, tonight. I keep saying this morning. The Lord has provided for his people an ever-flowing source of help, his spirit, the spirit of God. Our second our point tonight, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. So the Lord will meet the needs of his people. How does he do that? He does this through his spirit. So verses 6 to 10 are three things. There are three things that the Lord promises to do for Zerubbabel and his people in verses 6 to 10. Well, they're actually more than three things. It's probably at least five, but I've picked three. Uh, first, the Lord is going to meet their weaknesses by telling them in verse 6 that uh, what they need is not more might or more power. Now, the word for might and power are basically synonymous. They're commonly associated with the idea of human strength or strength or physical strength or wealth or military power. And God, and what God is saying to his people is that what they need the most in order to complete the temple, which seems like an impossible task, is not more strength or more men or more volunteers or more money or more resources or more political or military power. That's not what they need. What they need is God himself. And by his spirit, God has come to meet them in their weaknesses. What seemed impossible for them to complete, God himself will do. The same is true for us in our weaknesses. Whether it's in our personal life or in our service of God, God will meet our weaknesses. And we are sometimes tempted to look outside the means that God has provided for us for help. We are sometimes tempted to take matters into our own hands and rely on our own cleverness or how imaginative we can be or rely on our earthly resources and abilities rather than on God. For example, in pastoral ministry, when we see our church attendance dwindle, we might be tempted. I'm not saying we're doing that, but we might be tempted to think that what we need to do is have a better website. Maybe if we tweak our website a little bit or change our church logo. What if we make it look a bit more attractive or have more modern songs or, or shorter sermons? We might be tempted to think that what we need is a better church sign or a more modern looking building. And some of these things might be good things to think about and, and consider. But here in our passage, the Lord teaches his people that what they need most is his spirit powerfully working in their midst. What our churches need most is not cleverly put together ministry strategies or techniques. What our churches need is the Spirit of God to work powerfully in our midst, to help us in our weaknesses. The second thing that God promises to do for his people in our passage is to remove all their hindrances. All their hindrances. I can't say that word well. So first thing, God meets us in our weaknesses. And the other promise is that God will remove our mountains. So look at what God says to Zerubbabel in verse 7. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. God promises to Zerubbabel that he will remove from him all opposition, all obstacles. God will remove and flatten all the difficulties and the mountains, all these things that Zerubbabel looked at and thought, I, I could never finish this job. And so in some, in our passage, God tells his people 
that he has provided for them a limitless source of power and strength. He is working among them by his spirit. God tells his people that he will meet their needs. And now God tells to his people that he will remove all that hinders them. He will take away from them anything and everything that hinders the rebuilding of his temple. What an encouragement it would have been to Zerubbabel to hear this message from God. Zerubbabel was not only the governor of Judah, he was also the heir to the throne of David. His failure to finish the completion of the temple would have undermined his credibility in the eyes of those who have returned from the exile. As the heir of the throne to David, he had the responsibility to lead and shepherd God's people, to rule over God's people. He had the responsibility to lead and teach and encourage the people of God in worship and the law of God. But so far, it seems that all that Zerubbabel had to show for himself was an unfinished temple, an unfinished project, a failed rebuilding project. But God, God would not allow his servant to fail. So look at the second part of verse 7. And he that is Zerubbabel shall bring, says the Lord, forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Zerubbabel will finish the work. So God will not only provide for his people, he will meet their weaknesses with strength. He will remove all barriers before them. And thirdly, the Lord will give victory to Zerubbabel. God says in verse 7 that Zerubbabel will bring forth the capstone and finish the rebuilding of the temple. Look at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me, that is to Zechariah, saying, The hands, the hands of Zerubbabel, have laid the foundation of this house. And we posed to think, well, that was 17 years ago, but God says in this verse, His hands shall also complete it. And the people of God will know that this is a work not of Zerubbabel. This was a work of God's grace. Look at what they say at the end of verse 7. The people of God will shout, Grace, grace. Sometimes the Lord sends to us what seems like an impossible task so that when we overcome, we might learn to say, Thank you, Lord, for the work of your enabling grace in our lives. Because there is no way we could have done it by ourselves. I remember coming back to Australia at the end of 2014. I remember considering, or at least some of my friends said to me, you should consider full-time ministry in the PCV. Uh, where I'll have to be ministering and preaching in English uh, each week. I remember thinking and praying, Lord, will you please give strength? Will you please enable? And now every time that I read my Bible and I come to a passage like that, I think about this. Grace. Grace. Every day that I spend in ministry, I know that it's by God's grace and strengthening alone. Without God's enabling grace in our lives, without God enabling grace in our marriages, without God enabling grace in our relationships with others, without God's enabling grace in our workplaces, in our struggles, in our ministries, in our churches, we would not last. And we would not bear lasting fruits for God. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Whether it be in our own personal walk with the Lord or whether it be in the life of the church. Unless the Lord enables Unless the Lord provides, unless the Lord strengthens and helps and equips and builds and shows to us His grace, it is in vain that we labor. After 17 years of unfinished work, 
Zerubbabel was learning that what he needed the most was God's help. From the book of Ezra, we learned that it would take another four years for the temple to be completed. It wasn't just that God made those promises to, to Zerubbabel and his people. It was going to take four years, four years of trusting and relying upon God. And it brings light to what we read in verse 10. For whoever has despised the days of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So part of the application here is to learn not to despise the days of small beginnings and not to be discouraged or disheartened when things in our churches or in our Christian lives seems to be growing slowly or moving slowly. When I was a student for the ministry, my supervisor told me to go and speak with a minister whose ministry has been flourishing uh, over the course of the years. He was uh, the minister of a congregation of about 200 people. And so I went and I met with this minister. And the minister told me that over the years, many students have come to him thinking that somehow he had discovered the secret formula for church growth. But he told me that there was none, only the faithful ministry of the word and prayer and evangelism. And by God's grace, the congregation grew. One person at a time, a couple at a time, a family at a time joined. Some left, another person joined. And over the course of 20 plus years that he has been there, the Lord built up his church. One person at a time, one couple at a time, one family at a time. Let us not despise the days of small things and the days of small beginnings whether it be in ministry or in our personal walk with God. The Lord will bring to completion the work of sanctification that he has started in us. So where do we go when our lives and ministries, when we, where do we go when in our lives and ministries we find ourselves struggling with discouragement? Where do we go? Who do we turn to when everything in life seems to be going nowhere? How do we persevere and where do we find strength from? Zechariah chapter 4 gives to us the answer. God, by his spirit, at work within us. He will provide. He will enable. He will strengthen. He will equip. He will help. He will fulfill his purposes for our lives. Zechariah doesn't teach us to try harder or be more pious. He doesn't give us a list of do's and don'ts. He doesn't give us a program to follow a 12-step guide to the Christian life. In this chapter, we are encouraged to look at the promises that God has made to his people and to rejoice and to trust and to find our hope and our joy in God whose power is limitless to help us, whose promises are true, whose purposes for our lives are trustworthy. Zechariah chapter 4 tells us in whom we can find encouragement in the days of small things. It is found in God. And finally, so there is provision is the work of the Holy Spirit meeting our needs, flattening our difficulties, helping us to overcome. And finally, in verses 11 to 14, the Lord uses means. He works through his people. So look at verse 11. Uh, these are elements of the vision that Zechariah doesn't fully understand. And so he asks in verse 11, uh, Then I said to him, that is the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? Zechariah is confused. 
And the angel replies in verse 14, then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. These are the two anointed ones. Now, some people think that this is a reference possibly to the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Because in Ezra chapter 5 and in Ezra chapter 6, the completion of the temple is attributed to their ministry. Haggai and Zechariah both ministered at the same time, and they were both used by God to bless his people. But it's more likely that the two anointed ones here is a reference to Joshua the high priest, mentioned just a chapter before in Zechariah chapter 3, and Zerubbabel in our chapter tonight, the heir to the throne of David, mentioned in Zechariah chapter 4. But whether we believe uh, them to be Haggai and Zechariah or Joshua or Zerubbabel, the point is the same. The Lord will bless his people through the ministry of his servants. The oil representing the Spirit of God would flow from the olive trees through the branches, the pipes, the servants of God, to the lampstand. The Lord will bless, he will bless his people through the work of Zerubbabel as he completes his mission to rebuild the temple. And the Lord will bless his people by providing for them a high priest who has been cleansed from sin and restored. Joshua can't do it by himself. God does it for him in Zechariah chapter 3. And so we found that it wasn't a case where God was encouraging a kind of spiritual passivity. God wasn't saying, leave it all up to me. God wasn't saying to his people, do nothing, and the temple will take care of itself. In verse 14, we learn that the Lord uses means. He uses instruments. And in this case, he would use his anointed ones, Joshua and Zerubbabel, to accomplish his plans for his people. And the same is true for us today. The Lord uses different kinds of means to minister to us, his people. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we learn that the Lord uses his people as his ambassadors, as his witnesses for the gospel. The Lord sends us as his ambassadors to take the gospel to the nations. The Lord uses the teaching and preaching of his word to train his people in righteousness and equip his church for works of service. The Lord can use our trials and our suffering to bring comfort to those who are going through the same kind of trials and sufferings that we are going through. We learn this from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The Lord uses our prayers to accomplish his purposes for our lives when we pray in accordance with his will. The Lord uses means. And in Zechariah, the Lord is going to use his people to accomplish the, his purposes for Israel. So Zechariah chapter 4 is an encouraging chapter. In fact, all the visions that God has given to Zechariah so far has been nothing but encouraging. And again, we've we got to cast our minds back uh, to this uh, remnant of people coming back from the exile with, with nothing. They were discouraged, crushed by the difficulties and insurmountable challenges that they faced. Politically, they were not their own. They were a nation under the authority of Darius, the Persian king. Economically, they were not a prosperous people. Socially, they were oppressed and hated by their neighbors. Spiritually, it seems to them that their past sins have made it impossible for God to forgive them. But the Lord had not abandoned his people. In his grace, the Lord sent to them a prophet to call them to return to God. 
And by God's grace, they responded. We talked about this in chapter 1. They responded in repentance. And now the Lord promises to them the golden lampstand. He promises that it will shine again. The symbol of God's people and God's presence will shine bright again. The Lord will come to bless His people with an endless measure of His Spirit. So what a blessing it is for us, isn't it? Who live on this side of the cross. What a blessing it is for us who learned and known that Jesus has come and died and rose again and He has poured out the Spirit upon us. How blessed are we to know that God's unfailing and unending and limited power is at work within us and within God's church. The Lord has given us His Spirit to meet our needs, to strengthen us in our weaknesses, to keep us from temptation, to remove our obstacles, to help us to overcome. Let us put our faith and our hope in God. Let us pray. Loving and faithful Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for Zechariah chapter 4. We thank you, Lord, that it encourages us uh, to rely on you and to put our trust in you and in your power and not to rely on our own strength. We thank you, Lord, uh, for peeling uh, the veil of reality between heaven and earth and for showing to your people in the Old Testament your promises to them. And we thank you, Lord, that you've done the same for us in the book of Revelation. We can go to this book and be reminded that uh, uh, the victory has been won. Uh, Christ uh, rules, he reigns. And uh, Lord, we look forward to his return. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In his name we pray. Amen.